welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. This podcast features experts in the field talking about the most salient issues in healthcare reform. Welcome to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm your host, Emily George, and I'm here today with Dr. Bill Berry, co-founder of Ariadne Labs. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you for having me, Emily. This is fantastic. We are so excited to have you on the show today. And you've had a long history in medicine and healthcare policy and innovation. And we're eager to hear more about your lessons learned. Um, But first, can you talk to us about your career journey? Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm going to abbreviate it um, considerably because it's been a long journey. Started back in the early 1970s when I uh, when I started medical school, and uh, because of the timing, I ended up in the military for the first part of my real practice career, and uh, was in the United States Army for about 15 years. Left as a lieutenant colonel, and then moved from there actually into private practice. Um, I was in private practice for a few years and made another transition from there into academia where I stayed for a handful of years. I did all of my training in the military though and was trained both as a general surgeon and then as a cardiothoracic surgeon. I ended up in private practice in uh, Northern California at the time that HMO medicine was really exploding in California. And although I was in private practice and was mostly was mostly compensated for the work that I was doing, providing healthcare to patients um, by fee-for-service medicine, honestly. Um, A big portion of my practice was covered by an HMO or a group of HMOs. And I got really interested in HMO medicine then, so much so that after having been in private practice for a little more than 10 years, um, I decided to go back to school. So in 2001, I left my clinical practice in Northern California and moved my family back across the country um, and spent two years educating myself about different ways of thinking about how to make care safer for the patients that we take care of every day. And I went and spent a year studying policy at the Kennedy School of Government and then another year um, getting an MPH at the Harvard T.H. Chan School. And so in 2003, I was living in Boston and trying to decide what to do with an initial plan. I wanted to get involved in politics in Washington, D.C., but the political environment at that point in time after 9-11 wasn't terribly favorable. And, uh, and so I decided to stay in Boston and had to figure out since I didn't want to go back to clinical practice, what it was that I did want to do. I started then working for a malpractice company, the one that insures all of Harvard, a company called Crico, um, and started reviewing malpractice cases, which for me was an incredible experience at looking at care on the front lines when care doesn't go the way that people intended it to. And I learned a lot um, from watching the things that went wrong and 
from that exposure, I ended up meeting Atul Gawande, and, uh, and we started working together. I was very, very fortunate then to work with the World Health Organization and a whole bunch of experts in creating the World Health Organization's surgical safety checklist. And I'll tell you that from my standpoint, that was the opportunity of a lifetime to make potentially impact on a grand scale. Um, and I think honestly, the the checklist that resulted was it was and is an incredible patient safety tool. But I think for you know for me and for a tool too, it kind of opened the door to thinking about applying those kinds of principles to actually improve care in other settings, which eventually led to the foundation of Ariadne Labs, which is a, a center that sits in between the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard School of Public Health that's devoted to, to being a little bit impatient most of the time and wanting to make change in healthcare. Um, basically at an accelerated pace. So there are many, many ways to bring change. Certainly through policy is absolutely one way of doing it through frontline change in care. Um, it's kind of at the other end. I tell people it's like looking through the other end of a telescope. Um, we are very, very, or have been in the past very focused on making frontline changes in the healthcare system. So that was what got me to today. I was the Chief Medical Officer at Ariadne Labs, the first one, um, and I stepped down from that position about two years ago now, and uh, actually now I'm semi-retired and uh, live in San Diego, though I still work part-time for Ariadne Labs. Wow, you've had tremendous experience over the last few years and, and decades, actually, and thank you so much for sharing with us um, about some of those things. I want to dive in a little bit, um, you know, as a thought leader in the healthcare delivery system, both in the United States and abroad with your work with the surgical safety checklist and other initiatives, what changes have you seen in the way providers are discussing healthcare reform over the past decade or two? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I had the opportunity to live through, I think when we talk about healthcare reform, it, it's, it probably is important to define what you mean by healthcare reform. And the way that I define it to myself is trying to get the healthcare system to change from the way that it is, to have it more responsive to the patients that it's responsible for caring for and at the same time to make it more inclusive, to solve some of the problems that we know are kind of everywhere with healthcare disparities, particularly in, in our own country, but it's true you know, globally as well. The people who need care the most a lot of times aren't the ones who get it. So when I think about reforming the current system, I look at a movement towards broader coverage moving in this country, I would hope towards universal healthcare coverage where healthcare is seen more as a right um, than a privilege. And I think that also extends outside the United States. Having experienced what it's like to be paid in 
and compensated, which I think is a big piece of what drives a lot of what goes on in healthcare. Honestly, I've experienced everything from being paid by the case to being paid by the month to just getting a salary. Um, and I think that the those different ways of being compensated in the healthcare system honestly affect a lot about how the providers think about the care that they're providing. I mean, what my hope and dream for the world is that eventually patients get the care that they need. Um, and I think that we're a long way from it. And what I've seen in terms of providers at the front lines, there's been a lot, even though we think that things don't change very much, there's been a lot of change in the last 20 years. I mean, when I was in private practice, which would have been before 2001, that was a predominant way that providers were actually reimbursed and the system was reimbursed for the way that care was provided. And that has changed entirely. A lot of particularly physician providers, but that also extends to many other providers in the healthcare system, are now employed by the systems that they they work in, and that is a is a significant change in terms of moving towards a system that is much more focused on doing the right thing for every patient at the right time. You know, when, when, when I was in actual practice 20 years ago, I would go into a doctor's lounge and all I would hear about was the changes that were coming in reimbursement. That was like nonstop. And having been exposed to that in the last five years, the conversations have changed. They're not the same. I think people are still concerned about, you know, the living that they make and how they, you know, how they move ahead professionally in their careers. But I think that the conversations in the, you know, in those kinds of settings have changed significantly and significantly for the better. Um, because I think that the current models of reimbursement actually are moving in the right, honestly, are moving in the right direction towards a system that provides better care to every single patient. Everything you shared was just so interesting. And and I think that especially talking through some of the, um, the differences between the changes that you see being made at a policy level and then how that translates to the ground. And when you think about frontline providers, they're the ones that are primarily responsible for implementing the changes that are being made at this policy level. And um, you talked a little bit about the provider experience. And one thing I think a lot about is that, you know, these providers in each state or in each healthcare facility, they carry major insights and lessons learned from, from trial and error as they try to enact these new things. But we, we often see that these lessons aren't shared with other providers. And can you talk a little bit about how you've seen this play out and, and maybe some solutions for how we could facilitate better learning um, that, we're, that we're actually experiencing on the ground? Yeah, I, I think, Emily, that's a, that's, that's a broad question and a, and a tall order to try and solve that problem. I mean, I think, you know, we talk all the time um, in health 
care about making the system highly reliable and one of to provide the best care to patients honestly and that's the reason to do it and one of the principles of high reliability is really figuring out how to tap into the people who really know what it's like to be at the front edge of the healthcare system. And honestly, I think that for the most part, we don't do a very good job right now of harvesting the, those learnings that you're, that you're talking about, those, those things that people figure out by trial and error, by serendipity, that could absolutely more broadly applied improve the way that care is actually delivered to patients and you know what we what we really don't have is a good way of listening to those people there is so much production pressure in the system itself right because honestly the resources are are always going to be constrained and that's appropriate to have resources not you know not limitless we you know we've seen in the past what happens if water is free people waste it and if healthcare was completely without fiscal restraints on it it would become incredibly wasteful i think you know that's a lesson that's been learned over and over again but it this wastefulness that you're talking about is the is the knowledge that's actually lost because no one who's in a position to influence policy is really connected to the front line where they really understand better what it takes to actually deliver care and you know i wish i had some solution sitting in my pocket um for figuring out how to improve the information transfer from frontline providers up the stream. I think that, um, you know, there are things, practical things that are going on right now to try and make that better. I think that, you know, this whole idea of listening more to frontline providers and giving them the opportunity as part of their daily work to be able to give feedback um, to the people who actually could make change in the system. I think it's getting it's getting better, but it's it's far from where it should be. You know, when I when I started out in healthcare, it was uh, very much uh, a top-down, non-transparent system, where people honestly were literally afraid to speak up when they saw things that were dangerous, or afraid to speak up when they saw something that went wrong that actually had the potential to hurt patients there was this this powerful pressure to remain silent um, because people were afraid suppose it was a mistake that they made that led to whatever problem it was and it was a preventable mistake the system that I grew up in 50 years ago was filled with blame and you know and when something would go wrong the system looked for somebody to pin it on. And while that's changed some, it, you know, it's an absolutely not where it should be. You know, and to me, all the work that we've done to try and encourage people to, to speak up, to move towards what, you know, what carries the moniker just culture, 
um, in healthcare is it's absolutely the direction that we need to move in. Um, but the process is slow. I mean, it, it honestly is. You know, I, I am a big believer that there are all kinds of lessons that we can learn from our brethren in the aviation industry. And I know, you know, when I talk to providers, a lot of times I take a lot of heat for saying things like that. But they have figured out a way of allowing people to talk about things that went wrong or nearly went wrong um, so that things can be surfaced and dealt with. And that's still a big problem um, in healthcare. And I think, you know, we're going in the right direction, but we're not there yet. And so, you know, if I was going to work on one area, that would be the place where I would focus. I'm a big believer in equipping people with tools so that they can communicate and speak up. And, uh, and I think we need to do a whole lot more than that if we're going to really implement the changes that we think need to be implemented. Because if you know we give people a voice, then they will be heard and we can harvest all that learning by trial and you know, the other half of that is error by the error that occurs in the system. And when we silence the error and we pretend like everything is perfect, all that learning um, gets wasted. Mm. Well, it's interesting, you know, you talked a little bit about your, your, the military training and, um, and medicine and, and the hierarchy, you know, we know is pervasive in both and, and sort of that, that punitive culture, um, is familiar to both of those worlds. And I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about when you saw the change in medicine um, where people were becoming more uh, confident and comfortable in speaking up and, and when that transition started happening? Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, people didn't talk about that very much until about 20 years ago, I think that the whole patient safety movement that, you know, basically emerged from a handful of reports from the Institute, what used to be called the Institute of Medicine, um, first do no harm, um, crossing the quality chasm, those reports actually kind of, you know, set a mandate. And a big piece of what the people that authored those reports knew was how important this idea of improving transparency and improving communication and giving frontline providers a voice actually was. And so if I was to, you know, kind of put a pin in it, it would be right around 2000 that, you know, that the ball started to roll. And like I said, it's not, it isn't fixed. Um, there still are errors that are buried. There still are people who work in the healthcare system that are afraid of losing their jobs or, you know, losing the ability to work, like losing their license. Um, by reporting things that they see happen in the system, right? And until we have access to that, you know, we can't fix the problems that a lot of time lead to that. I mean, the other big change that's happened is, again, in about the last 20 years, is what what's called systems thinking, that, you know, we finally have this recognition that it's not just, it's hardly ever just the individual. I mean, that when something goes wrong. And, um, and I certainly saw that when I reviewed 
malpractice cases, many, many times there were powerful systems factors that set the clinician or a, or a group of clinicians up for a disaster to happen. And systems thinking, thinking about the way that care ultimately reaches the patient, um, I think has been a huge co contributor to the potential, again, to turn policy into action. It's, it, the individual practitioners are really, really important, but changing the underlying system is also absolutely critical to ultimately giving patients the best care. Um, you know, and I think, again, the IOM stuff moved things tremendously and this whole idea of thinking about healthcare not as just this conglomeration of individual providers, but actually as a system of care, um, I think is, you know, it's been a remarkable change that, you know, it's actually caused even more change at the front lines. Um, so both really, really important. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and maybe it'd be helpful. I would love to hear some specific examples of how, um, how you've seen um, providers kind of sharing learning or best practices across, across regions, across states, even countries. I know you've had ex some experience with that. And so how have you seen people do it well? Yeah, I mean, the to me, technology has changed a lot of this, and you know, as well, like right now, we're communicating you and I using technology, right? And so, technology has probably allowed more opportunities for people to communicate. But the, I mean, the bottom line in all this is, in order to share, you have to have ways of passing ideas from one human mind to another mind. And the, the ones that I've always been the most impressed with actually are the ones that really leverage the humanness, which most of the time means people sitting with people, the community actually being physically together. And I have watched that as a way of passing ideas function in multiple settings, you know, through the work of multiple different organizations um, and in a lot of different projects. There is, I don't think, a lot of times there is a replacement for getting people to sit in the same place together and have the opportunity to converse, develop a level of trust and actually, you know, work together to solve a problem. I think that's, and probably will be into the future, the most effective way, but technology is also getting better and enables, you know, people to get closer to that without having to transport them around the globe. So, you know, virtual meetings now can replace part of that, but people need to work together to solve these huge problems and to get the information that needs to get spread across the group actually spread, right? There's a lot of ways to do it. Not all information needs to be spread that way, right? We're doing one of them right now, which is a podcast. And certainly, you know, those are incredibly helpful to get people to think in a slightly different way. But, you know, particularly if you're focused on solving a problem, 
a lot of times I think that, again, sitting in the same place. So some kind of collaborative meeting, um, I have watched be incredibly effective at getting people to make change on the ground. Because um, when you get a group of people into the same room together, you'll, at least what I've observed, is there's often a handful of solutions that have already been identified in that group um, that could help other people solve the same problem that they're all trying to solve. So I think, again, figuring out ways for people to collaborate, um, you know, and this is uh, this is obviously, this isn't rocket science. A lot of people know this already, but I have watched. It's possible and it's incredibly valuable when you're trying to solve a problem. Mm. Well, we only have a few minutes left. And, and just for my last question on that note, um, just sort of ending more on a on a um, even more practical level. You know, in, you've you've um, had a lot of experience being a leader of teams and organizations, and you talked a lot about earlier production pressure. And so, if you were going to give advice to um, like another CMO or a leader of a team that was really wanting to get better at creating space for these conversations to take place, um, where would you tell them to start? Well, I think part of it, and you just touched on it, is deciding that it's a priority. And if it is a priority, that it, the effort deserves resources. And for these kinds of changes, a lot of times the resources equal people's time, you know, which is, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to production pressure, right? So. What it says to me is that, you know, if somebody really wants to make change, if you think that uh, implementing a policy is really important, that it's worth your effort to do, you have to recognize that that is going to take people's time and it's going to take some kind of resources. There is, There are changes that you can make that don't require that, but almost all of them do a conscious admission, if you will, that this effort is going to take resources in order for us to accomplish it, or it's not going to happen. And so what, you know, what I have observed in healthcare pretty broadly is that there's an awful lot of projects started and not very many of them finished. And most of them don't get finished because they become deprioritized and starved for resources. Now, again, one of the things that I don't think we're very good at in healthcare just yet is helping people prioritize what they should work on first. And so, I mean, you asked me, and at the top of my list, it would be just to encourage organizations to prioritize and decide what they're going to see through from beginning to end so that something absolutely gets done um, because I think a lot of times what results is nothing changes um, but some resources are expended in the process of not changing anything and I think we can do, do a lot better. There's one more thing that I'd like to add and, and that has to do with the efficiency of the system. The system right now absolutely can be more efficient and provide better care. The problem is 
there's a path to more efficiency and that has to be prioritized because that is also something that doesn't happen for free. So if you really want to make something more efficient and improve the quality at the same time, you actually have to work on it, which means that you have to take those resources from someplace else. And right now, a lot of times, again, the production pressure, the throughput pressure, in part because of the economics of the system, um, you know, it, it changes things in such a way that the resources never get spent on making the system better, um, which means it stays locked where it is. And yet it could be so much better and we could do so much more if we would just fix it. But it takes an investment and I don't think we're very good at that yet. Mm. Wow, these are all such um, fantastic insights and um, that's all the time that we have today. But everything you shared was incredibly um, valuable. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us today and, and share some of these insights with us, Bill. You're so welcome, Emily. Thank you for tuning in to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. Day Health Strategies is a Boston-based, mission-driven healthcare consulting firm specializing in providing timely and effective solutions to complex problems in healthcare. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at www.dayhealthstrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at dayhealthstrat. Just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Day Health Strategies. Our producer and host is Emily George. Editing is done by Kate Gautung. Special thanks to Purple Planet for the use of their songs.